Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. One of the things that I think sort of sets our organization apart, and I know that Ben was saying, man, you've got to tell these stories, but we get the privilege of smuggling Bibles into countries all over the world. I've had the great honor of smuggling Bibles into North Africa, um, China. In fact, I remember with China, I had 17 kilos of Bibles in my bag. I was in the hills outside of Hong Kong, meeting with the underground church, and we're sort of talking one evening about how we're going to make the delivery. Anyway, as we're sitting with a brother from the underground church, he said to me, last time we had a group of travelers here, as we were standing at the border waiting to cross into mainland China with our Bibles, we prayed that the Lord would help us get them through. And right there in front of us, the x-ray machines, they blew up and they caught on fire. He said, like smoke and flames. And he says, we're able to walk our bags through and deliver the Bibles to China. Yeah. He then says to me, Mike, I want you to pray the same thing happens. I'm thinking, I've never prayed in my life that an x-ray machine would blow up and catch on fire. But he's telling me to do it, so I better do it. The next day we jump on the bus and this brother comes running out to the bus, waving a piece of paper with a big smile on his face. We're getting ready to drive down to the border and he says, it's a news report from a local website. He begins to read it out. He says, last night at 8.30, the scanners at the Hong Kong border blew up and caught on fire and they'll be down today. Yeah, man. So we get down to the border and there's scorch marks, there's yellow tape and bags are being selected at random. We sort of walk our bags through into China and make the delivery to the underground church. An incredible privilege and honor. I remember later that day meeting and sitting with a guy who must have been 60, 70, maybe even 80 years of age, talking about faith in the face of communism. Incredibly difficult stories of how he grew up as a believer in China. As our conversation came to an end, I said to him, hey, well, brother, can I pray for you? And he says, yeah, I want you to pray that persecution never leaves China. Wow. I thought, that's strange. I was pretty new with Open Doors at this stage, and I thought, as a charity, well, we must exist to stop it. Surely you want it to stop. And he says, we look at the Australian church as a prophetic example of what happens when faith becomes free. He said, the value of Jesus drops. I want you to pray persecution never leaves China. Wow. Naively, I paused and said, well, brother, would you pray for me? He says, yeah, I pray you'll be persecuted. Because <laughs> he said to me, Persecution is the enemy's second best tactic. His best is materialism. He said, picture this, Mike. The enemy has a barrel of a gun pressed towards your temple and he says, renounce Christ or I'll pull the trigger. Nine times out of ten in that moment, you'll find the courage not to deny Christ and the trigger will be pulled. But he said, now picture this. The enemy says, fine, Mike, you can have it all. He takes you to a warehouse and he says, here, big house, cars, money, fame, food, whatever it is you want. And more than that, there's Jesus sitting on a throne and you can go to him any time you want. He said, it's not long before you get so focused in playing in the blessings that you don't even realize that Jesus Christ has left the building. And he says, that is a problem with materialism. I've seen a lot of Christians survive persecution, but very few prosperity. It's what sets us apart as an organization, is most charities, they exist to end the cause for which they serve. And that's a noble pursuit. But Open Doors, we believe that persecution is a hallmark of successful Christianity. 
that wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. My job, our job, your job, it's not to avoid persecution, it's to run headlong into it, driven by a courageous obedience, knowing that wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. By investing into the work of open doors, bright church, in many ways you're prolonging suffering. But you're doing it in the best of possible ways. The global body of Christ, it is one of the most beautiful things. It is under intense persecution. But in the middle of that, it's a great confirmation that Jesus is the one true God. I've seen governments all over the world who have far more respect for one verse of this book than I do. Because in countries that I've been to, the Bible can land you in prison in a heartbeat. And governments, totally irreligious groups of people, are terrified of the Bible. Persecuted church has a habit of turning your lens or your understanding of authentically following Jesus completely upside down. And this evening what I want to do is take you on a lesson that I've walked in that. The founder of our ministry is a guy called Brother Andrew. He wrote a book called God Smuggler many years ago. Some of you would have read that book. I spent a lot of time with him. He's an incredibly radical and amazing guy. But he has an acronym for Islam. And his acronym says, I sincerely love all Muslims. And I'm here to tell you that I don't. But as a CEO of an organization that lives by that, I have two options. Find a new job or figure out how to do it. And so tonight I want to take you on that journey that I've walked. A journey of what it means to truly and sincerely love all Muslims. And to do, I guess, to play it out a little bit and show you how my prejudice may exist, I want to tell you two stories. The first of those is about a place called Garissa in Kenya. In 2015, I was getting ready to speak at a big conference at Easter time, and as I was about to walk up on stage, I started to get some notifications through on my phone about an attack that was unfolding at a university in Garissa. Al-Shabaab, a localised Islamic extremism group, had stormed a university, Christian university. They proceeded to kill 147 students. They did it by luring most of them out under a false sense of security, saying that if they came out, they'd let them go, and then they laughed as they killed them. I remember as I walked up on stage and heard these reports and listened to the stories that in that moment I saw hatred. I saw a lack of love and respect towards God. And I saw saw each of those things in me. Because the Bible says, bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them, bless them. And it doesn't mean give them good things. I want to be clear about that. It's like an Abrahamic blessing that says you should desire their salvation. Well, what about this? On Wednesday, the 29th of April, 2015, a few years ago now, many of you will remember it, but my Urin Sukumaran and Andrew Chan were killed by firing squad in Indonesia, one of the largest Muslim nations on the planet. Happened to be very good friends with Rob and Christy Buckingham from Bayside Church who were instrumental in sort of pastoring and leading them. I remember speaking to Christy about the night of the executions and she told me how the boys had walked to the firing range singing the song 10,000 Reasons, how they'd asked to speak with each of the men tasked with pulling the trigger so they could tell them that they forgive them. Christy told me that a spirit of Stephen fell in the jail that night and the men who held the guns wept as they lined them up in their sights. 
they looked at Christy and asked her, will we be forgiven for this? And in that moment, she was able to share the gospel with them. It was a tragic and emotional time for Australia. Emotions in our country, they oscillated from anger to frustration and everything in between. And the feelings of injustice, they were heightened within the church community. It just didn't seem fair. I mean, they had started a church in the prison. They were teaching people to read, to paint, all sorts of incredible things. And I remember on the Thursday morning, the morning after the executions, it was a really solemn mood in our office as we had devotions that morning. But as we sort of sat around and all looked at the floor thinking about what, you know, what had just happened, it just didn't seem fair. I remember I asked a friend of mine the following question. If they had converted to Islam and were Muslim, would you feel any different? Because what we're meant to be recalling at is a death penalty, but I've got this sneaking suspicion if they had converted to Islam and were Muslim, most of us, and myself included, would have all but pulled the trigger. Or how about the notion that you, me, and Isis were all created in the same image of the same God? And as crazy as it seems, Jesus went to the cross for his love for you, me, and them. I'm not saying we worship the same God. But I'm saying that no one is beyond salvation. And that more than that, God used Saul to build the church as well as Paul. In fact, we only have the Great Commission because Saul breathed life into it. So maybe our prayer for groups like ISIS should stop being wiped them off the face of the planet and be more like, hey, Lord, bring your time of building a church to an end and convert them. It's fear that makes us feel this kind of anger towards Muslim. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should casually gloss over the actions of ISIS or the like, but isn't it funny how the actions of a proportionately small number of extremists... I want to be clear, ISIS is a terrorist group who use religion to justify their actions. A small number of extremists can more often than not taint our view on Muslims in general. And some people tell me, no, no, Mike, it's just what Muslims do. But if we're honest with ourselves, at the heart of responses like that, the underlying fear or emotion is almost always fear. It's slightly tangential, I know, but having grown up as an adopted child in a white part of Australia, I can promise you, people are terrified of what's different and it drives them to do unimaginable things. For the persecuted church, the genesis of most instances of persecution is fear. In communist countries, it's fear that Christianity will grow and become uncontrollable. In India, it's fear that Jesus offers people living under the caste system freedom from a deeply ingrained and well-established cycle of poverty. In the Middle East, it's fear of Jesus being the true son of God that results in ferocious attacks on the church. But what do we see happen in the face of persecution? Well, more often than not, we see the gospel grow. But not necessarily in a number sense. What you find is when people are forced to actively choose Jesus, some people will and some people won't. But the ones who do, they become bold and they become courageous in their faith. Under persecution and in the face of fear, the gospel more often than not grows. But did you realize... The same is true for Islam. When people respond in fear and try and control, conform and suppress Islam, what happens? People become more passionate. 
the media would say radicalized. And similarly to the church, there are some people within Islam who choose to turn their backs on Islam and some who passionately hold on to it. Because the link between fear, persecution and growth, it is not only limited to Christian things. I remember one believer once told me, you have far more in common with a Muslim than you do someone in your own family who doesn't believe in God. Because at least one of them acknowledges the existence of God. Across the Middle East and Asia, when I see people become disenfranchised with Islam, they don't ask or stop following God. They say, which God? So it makes talking to a Muslim about faith in Jesus far less confronting than talking to someone in our family who doesn't acknowledge the existence of God because they tell you, well, why is there even a need for God? So when everything in culture is driving us to choose fear over love, how should we as Christians respond? I remember I just finished speaking at a conference in WA and caught up with a friend of our ministries and we're talking about life, faith and obviously the usual suspect Islam came up because most of the time when I'm asked to speak in a church, to be honest, most people are wanting me to tell stories about Muslims persecuting Christians. And I remember saying to this friend, man, it's as though we've forgotten what love is. And she said, no, that's easy. It's in 1 Corinthians 13. And I paused and I thought, no, no, that's, that, that's a wedding verse. And she's like, no, it's not a wedding verse. It was written by Paul, living directly under persecution for a church wrestling with all sorts of issues. And it says, love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love, it never gives up. It never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. I spent so many hours thinking this passage through in light of the persecuted church. How do you interpret this passage as someone living under persecution? But more specifically, how do we interpret this passage in respect to Muslims or for that matter, anyone who doesn't share our belief system or our value structure. The way I see it is there's two responses. There's fear or there's love. More often than not, our natural tendency is to choose fear. It's by far the easiest option. Not only that, it feels far better. Fear is characterized by inaction, inflammatory talk, speculation, judgment, and more often than not, ignorance. And the thing with fear is, fear will only ever breed fear so what's the other option love however with love the problem is it requires no it demands a response love is characterized by action and for us that's terrifying it's what made Jesus's walk on earth so profound instead of inciting fear he challenged people to love and look how that worked out for him if you think about the church at that time and how they responded or accepted Jesus' challenge, they were some of his greatest accusers and individuals, people like you and I, we wrestled with the cost of what it meant for our families, for our careers, for our well-being, the disciples included. So how do we move from fear to love? 
Well, the only way I believe to make that transition is to start with hope. Because hope is the only thing greater than fear. It forms a bridge to change, a bridge from fear to love, inaction to action, no commission to great commission. The church's response, our response to Islam, it must protect against fear, find hope and demonstrate love towards Muslims because despite what the media wants us to believe, they are not all terrorists. I've had the great privilege of meeting Muslims all over the world. <clears throat> They're some of the loveliest, caring and most welcoming people. They're desperately God-seeking. As I said before, when most people in Middle Eastern culture become disenfranchised with Islam, the question is not why is there a need for God, the question is which God? In Egypt, <clears throat> I remember a brother talking to me and he says, Mike, the way to evangelize a Muslim is to picture a brick wall between you and them. And he said every single brick in that wall represents a question. He says as you spend time with them answering questions, bricks come out. Eventually the wall will get low enough that you can see the brother's eyes, but he says you can't walk with him yet. More time, more questions, more answers, more bricks come out. He says the wall eventually gets low enough that you can kind of get your arms through and you can hug him, but you still can't walk with him. More time, more questions, more answers, more bricks come out. He says eventually the wall gets low enough that you can kind of get a foot through. And he says, and that's where the journey begins. You know what's so beautiful about that picture? Is that whether it's Muslims or whether it's anyone in our society or culture, there is a brick wall between us and them. Too often we think, hey, you know what, in one cab ride, I'm going to get him from not believing in Jesus to being saved. Yeah. Our job as believers in Christ is to identify what makes up the brick wall and to ask the right questions. Because for some people it's greed, for some people it's fear of change, for some people it's what happens after death, for some people it's what happens when you retire. There's all these bricks in a wall. Our job is to find out what makes up the brick wall and to ask the right questions into that. As we read in the scripture, love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, boast, it's not self-seeking, easily angered, it keeps no record of being wronged, it doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And I said, as I said before, we so often read this verse at weddings, but the moment you read it through any other lens, it becomes some of the most keystone, life-changing words you'll ever read. Because can you for one moment begin what a society driven by this kind of love would look like? If we sort of begin to bring it in to close tonight, I want to tell you probably one of the most transformative stories of my time with the persecuted church. It's about a guy called Samson. I recently spent some time with him. He's from a Muslim background and he used to persecute Christians severely. I'm going to read his story tonight because it just keeps going and going and going and it's incredible. I want to get it right. But one day as he was walking to work, he heard the audible voice of God. This was in Afghanistan. He heard the audible voice of God call his name three times and ask him, why do you not accept me as God and Saviour? Samson said to me, I told the Lord, Christians are deceived. They call you a God, but you are not a God. Then the Lord said, you believe in God? 
And he replied, yes. And the Lord said, well, one day you'll meet him. What will you have done for him? You pray five times a day. You need to say those prayers for me. Stop now and pray and I'll explain your prayer. The Lord then asked him, well, do you believe I'm omnipresent? Which is bigger, the house or the chair? And Samson replied, of course, the house. And the Lord replied, the earth and the sky. These are the table and the house is me. Because the earth is a support for my feet and the sky is a place of my seat. I am so bigger, so greater. And so why do you only choose Allah? Samson told me, at that moment I felt the foundation of Islam was not strong and every word from the Lord was like a hit into the foundation. Then the Lord said to him, the dome you're praying to was created with a man's hands and this is an idol. He said, I am a God of love. I came and died for you. This conversation on the street in Afghanistan went on for 40 minutes. It got to the point where Samson told me he fell to his knees in the street and gave his life to the Lord right there and then. He then began walking from village to village, sharing the gospel and telling people there is only one way, Jesus Christ. One day as he was walking to a village, he saw a Mujahideen, an Islamic extremist, coming towards him carrying a knife and a gun. Mujahideens are known for their violence and ferocity towards believers. Samson said, I didn't want to share the gospel with him, but the Lord told me to tell him that I love him and I died for him. Samson tried to ignore it, but he said the Lord told him four times. Sounds like most of us say it. And so with great worry, he approached the Mujahideen and began to share the gospel. After 20 minutes of sharing the gospel, the Mujahideen broke down and began to cry. And he said to Samson, I was looking for a God who loves me with all his heart. I am now a Christian. Samson told me how he would continue to preach the gospel from town to town, but people would often beat him until his face was bleeding. After his conversion, his parents, relatives and local mullahs came together and forced Samson, his wife and two children to leave. His parents told him, choose Christianity, you have nothing. Choose Muslim, this is your home. Samson said he didn't know where to go. His father said to him, leave now, I will not bless you, I will curse you. And Samson responded by saying, Father, everything that is mine is yours. The only thing where I disobey you is my faith in my God. And I pray that God will let me serve you until your last days. Listen to this. Today you're not casting me away. You're sending me to my ministry. For the next year, Samson would go to his father's house once a week and do all of the yard work. His family would give him no food for the whole day. And at 4 p.m. each day, the family would come, force him to sit on a seat and ridicule him for over an hour, trying to get him to come back to Islam. After 12 months of this same pattern, Samson told me that his sister gave her life to Christ. After 18 months, his brother did too. And he says his parents, although still not Christian, they now protect him as opposed to persecute him. Samson eventually became a pastor and one day when he was worshipping in a church, I was sitting in the church as he told me this story. A group of Islamic extremists burst into the church. They had guns, they had knives and they were yelling that they would kill everyone. Samson asked the congregation to hold hands and pray and he began to say out loud, Lord bless our nation, come into our nation and give us many ministers. 
The Mujahideen, the leader of the group, entered the circle and began to beat him until there was blood all over his face and streaming from his eyes. Samson said to the guy beating him, Brother, I love you. Because God is love. Jesus has died for you. Even if you kill me today, when you go to him, he will hug and accept you. The Mujahideen pulled the gun from his side, placed it to his temple and pulled the trigger three times. The gun failed three times. The Mujahideen and his army, they all ran away in terror after that. And Samson told me how the atmosphere in the church, it turned to joy and praise to God because the presence of God had come upon them. They began to praise the Lord. They went outside, but another group was waiting for them. Samson began to preach to them that only Jesus' blood can save. The Mujahideen told him he can have one more week. They would come and beat Samson every night of that week. And every night he would share the gospel with them. He would tell them that Jesus loves them and died for them. The next Sunday night at 2 a.m. they came. Eight people with machine guns and knives. They said, come with us. Samson could not see their faces because I was wearing black headscarves. He told his wife, my friends have come. I must go with them. He says, lock the door behind me and do not open it until you hear my voice. His wife locked the door and Samson was taken. The terrorist said to him, today is your last day. Jesus is not a God and he will not save you. They took him to a garbage tip and they said, clean a garbage space on the ground and so he cleaned up this area on the ground he knelt down the mujahideen came over grabbed his hair and pulled his head back i can promise you as you're sitting in a church and there is a man reliving what it means to be forced to your knees and have your head pulled back you get every chilling piece of it samson said to me there's only two things the body can't fight against hunger and fear he says i wasn't scared but my body was twitching and as he reenacts it, you sit there and you start to just get the enormity of what this man has been through. As they placed a the knife on his throat, they said to him, what do you want to say? And Samson responded, Jesus loves you and I forgive you. They asked him, do you accept Islam? And he says, no, I found the truth. The creator of earth, heaven, and all mankind. He says, people create a religion. God created holy work. Please reveal your work to my brothers here. Salvation, protection for their children, and let them know that my blood is not on their hands. He said, please bless their families, and I forgive them. Amen. The Mujahideen screamed, are you a fool? We want to kill you, and you are praying for our families? Samson said, I see you as my brothers. And Jesus said, pray for your family. The Mujahideen then said, we'll go home. We'll come again and take you later. Two weeks later, while Samson was checking the locks on his church one evening, 30 people and two Mujahideens came back and they said, we want to talk. And they asked Samson, do you recognize us? And he says, no, because I can only see your eyes. And they said, we are those who wanted to kill you. And Samson replied, if you want to kill me, please give me five minutes. I've worked all day and I haven't said goodbye to my children. He says, I'll go and hug them. I'll say goodbye and I promise you I will come back. The Mujahideen said, we're not going to kill you. 
He began to tell Samson how a few nights earlier, 24 heads of the terrorist group had come down under the cover of darkness from their mountains into the city. It's a way it works. During the day they retreat to the hills and at night they come down and wage war on the city. He says, as 24 of these leaders went to walk into the city, there was a stream on either side and a road. He said the government surrounded them and a gunfight ensued. He says there was bullets flying from all four sides. He said, we couldn't raise our heads as I'd get shot. Then one of the leaders said, as we were lying there face down, we saw you and you came to us. He said, you told us to throw ourselves into the water and you'll survive. And he said, the two of us, we jumped into the river next to the road and we survived. The 22 other leaders were killed. They asked Samson, how did you manage to come to us and why weren't you shot? Samson replied, I was not there, but my God sent an angel who looked like me because I am his servant. He did it for you to come me, come back to me again so I can tell you that Jesus loves you, died for you and can give you salvation. The leader said to Samson, do you want to see our faces? And Samson said, you have stopped me so many times and beat me. Why do I need to see your face, God? Seize your face. The man said to Samson that they'll never fight again. They threw open their arms and they said to the soldiers behind them, This Christian tells the truth. We will accept Jesus. Samson said to me, Mike, God calls us to do things we never thought we could do. He said we'll be light for him in this dark world. We bring the light of Christ and that Jesus is the light. He said, we need to give Christ to those around us. We shouldn't hate people. We should love people. He said, love covers everything and it is only possible with God. The two leaders in this group said to Samson, we don't have your strength. We can't stay here and follow Jesus and endure what you've endured. Will you help us leave? And so Samson helped them escape the country. And to this day, those two men are still following and serving Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13. It is so much more than a wedding verse. Samson's story is a perfect example of that. Choosing love in the face of fear, a love that requires time, patience, courage and trust. You know, today or tonight, I've used Islam as an example. But please don't only hear that. Because fear, it pervades so much of our culture. Responding in love is not just something we need to do towards Muslims. We need to, we need to do it towards each other horizontally in the church. I fear that some of the greatest persecutors of the modern church are in fact Christian. Because the way we speak about each other so rarely brings honour. We too often judge others on their actions, but we judge ourselves on our intentions. And the impact of that is almost always negative. We need to show this kind of love for our neighbours, our work colleagues, the homeless, Indigenous Australians, the homosexual community. But remember, love, it doesn't have to equal yes. It involves discipline, character, principles, and grace. The unmerited, undeserved 
favour of God. And we are His agents of grace, not the judge, jury and executioner. We need love to be a natural overflow and response to all relationships. A love that is patient, a love that's kind, a love that doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not self-seeking or easily angered, it keeps no record of being wrong, it doesn't delight in evil but rejoices in truth. A love that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I started by saying, I don't love all Muslims. But I'll tell you what, with that 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, I can. Because I can be patient. I can be kind. I cannot be jealous, boastful, proud. I can delight when truth and justice wins out. See, there's an accountability piece to it. 1 Corinthians 13, it is the single greatest handbook and instruction tool for how we love each other and those around us. I want to pray for us tonight, but I want to really ask you a question. I see fear pervading our society and culture. Anxiety, depression, they're all symptomatic of fear. I see fear forcing us in society and culture. I said persecution is a hallmark of successful Christianity. Well, you know what? I see people chase persecution over Jesus. They say needlessly inflammatory statements, trying to elicit a response. If persecution is a consequence of successful Christianity, that is true. But I'll tell you what, chasing persecution isn't. We need to chase society and culture with a love of 1 Corinthians 13, but not persecution. So I just want to ask you to stand as we finish this out in worship. If tonight you're here and you're wrestling with a notion of love, you're terrified of society and culture, you're worried about things like Muslims or people that stand in the way of what you believe, I want to pray for us tonight. Because I believe the institution of the local church is one of the most hope-filled things on the planet. And when we can truly learn what it means to live with this kind of love. You talk about being bold as a statement for this year. Love, it never sounds bold, but I'll tell you what, it's one of the boldest things you can do. You want to see bright church go from strength to strength? Well, it starts with this kind of love. And I want to encourage you tonight that as you leave here, to just recalibrate your lens on love. Because it's not warm and fuzzy, it's not soft. It's bold, it's courageous, it's strong. And remember, it's because of Jesus' love for us that He hung on a cross. Father, we come before you tonight and I thank you for the great privilege it is to be in this country and serving you. Lord, I pray for people right across this room tonight who wrestle with the notion of love, who are entangled in fear. I pray tonight that you'll break those bonds of chains. Father, I pray that we would find a new way to be focus on loving you, that we would be courageous, that we would be bold in our face. I speak that over this church as we leave here today. Lord, I pray in the community around here that we would see bright church bring the masses to know Jesus.
Lord, we ask that you would give us a love that is patient, that is kind, that doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it keeps no record of being wrong. I pray protection over this church, that in the moments where we want to fight amongst ourselves, that we would learn what it means to truly love each other horizontally in this church. And Father, we thank you for the greatest gift of love, and that is your Son, Jesus, who hung on a cross so that we might be in right standing with you, and in whose name we pray tonight. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.